0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A variety of topics are on today's program, including research, local research, I should say, into gorillas and chimpanzees. Also, vaccinations, and we hear from WITF's Tim Lambert about the island nation of Cuba. But up front, the program 1A, hosted by Joshua Johnson, made its debut at the beginning of January on WITF and on public radio stations across the country. 1A replaced the Diane Reem show after Reem's retirement late last year. Now, I had the opportunity to speak with Joshua Johnson about the early months of 1A, and especially about civil conversation at a volatile time in the nation's history. Joshua Johnson, welcome to Smart Talk. Thanks for having me. We spoke just before the show launched in January, and you told us what you had planned for the show. But how would you describe your first few months of hosting 1A?
1: Busy. (laughs) Man, oh man, has it been busy. It's just been an onslaught. From day one, it's been long days and long hours every day and, and tons of changes and figuring out the systems that we're going to use to put it together and lots of studying. And it's it's been busy. It, if it looks like Washington is crazy and chaotic right now, it's, it is. It's 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 an interesting time to be here. But it's gone well. The response has been really, really positive. We, we believe that it would be positive, but it's been even more positive than we expected. And people seem to have really latched on to the idea of this kind of a conversation. So it's been exhausting and very satisfying.
0: Now, without talking about news or events, because I will in just a few minutes, but have there been any surprises or anything unexpected along the way personally for you?
1: Just managing the workload. I mean, I knew that this was going to be a lot of work. We knew this was going to be a lot of work. But I I think you don't really know what it's like until you're in it. And figuring out the sound of the show, the feel of it, what we need to do to make each show work, what we consider to be a quote-unquote good hour of radio, is something we've been figuring out as a team. And just being part of the process of making those hours work has been really fascinating. I mean, there's we, there aren't a lot of radio programs like this, whether it's, just the way that we're going about putting shows together or the fact that we don't take live calls every day, but we do take voicemails. I mean, just all those little elements of the program had a variety of unknowns baked into them. And seeing how that has turned out has been really fascinating and satisfying.
0: I want to get back to what you said about a feel for the show, but this is where we talk about those news events. I don't know if there has ever been a better time for civil discourse, because shows like yours are unique out there. I mean, unfortunately, there are too many times where what we hear on radio, especially talk radio, uh, loud voices, arguing, debates, that kind of thing, and that's not what your show is about. So would you agree that it is a great time for civil discourse?
1: I think it is a necessary time for it. It's always a good time for civil discourse. I think now it's much more urgent than ever. So I think a program like 1A stands out among a lot of other programs because it is so intentionally geared toward civility and toward a conversation that everybody can take part in and and not feel attacked. A lot of listeners have contacted us and told us how grateful they are that we're providing this kind of a conversation at this time, but we've always needed this. I think it's not so much that it's new, it's just people are realizing that we used to be able to talk to one another this way, that that we do talk to one another this way when we're away from, you know, the political media outlets and, and news networks, that, that that kind of conversation is not foreign. In fact, it's very familiar, but when they hear it on the radio, people kind of realize, oh, that's... That's right. There's not a lot of places that do this anymore. So it's great to be that kind of a unique space, and it's also kind of sad that we are that unique.
0: One of the questions, Joshua, that I'm asked most often, and I'm on the local level, so I'm curious, I'm curious, and I'm sure the audience is too, is how you come up with the topics that you focus on on the program.
1: Well, we kick around ideas amongst ourselves, uh, as a team, we meet in the mornings to check in on that day's show and the following day's show and just to make sure that everything's in line. And then we have pitch meetings twice a week where we'll throw out ideas and try to think them through and see what makes sense and just try to figure out what issues are around that we might be able to add some some light to, especially if the conversation is mostly heat. We'd like to add a little more light. We do get ideas, From the audience and we do have space on our website the 1a.org for people to suggest ideas and to to chime in on story ideas that we already have and share their stories and often what has happened or at least a few times what's happened is we'll see patterns in what people are talking about or how they respond to a call out that we give them and that might lead us in a certain direction say hey a lot of people are asking about this aspect of the story, maybe we should dig into this a little further, and that might become an idea. so it it really is a way for us to co-author the show. Also, you can just suggest an idea. like you don't have to have a you know a hook to an existing show. I mean, we have a an option in our toll-free phone line when we're taking voicemails where people can just leave an idea for anything, and those ideas are heard, and we can kick them around and talk about them and and see if we like them. So really, People can send ideas to us all the time and if we begin to see a critical mass of the same thing, then it's an indication to us that there might be, there might be something there.
0: How do you decide on guests? I mean, you're in, in D.C., so not actually in D.C., but in the D.C. area, so that uh, you, know, you have a, a lot of people at your disposal.
1: Right. Well, we are in we're in Washington. We're in northwest Washington and we do have a tremendous Rolodex of people carried over from the Diane Rehm show, who we've already worked with in the past. Two of Diane Rehm's producers are on one A, and so they know that Rolodex extremely well. And that's a big benefit. But we can bring guests from anywhere. We just look for whoever the best person is to talk about it. Radio is a wonderful medium in that it's easy to get a guest on the air these days. You know, we can get them to a public radio station that is close to them. We've used a number of NPR stations to put guests on the air. We can talk to them on the phone. We talk to them via Skype. So it really doesn't matter if they can get to a television studio and get nice and dressed in front of an HD camera. If they have the story that we need to hear, we can talk to them or we can pre-record them and then roll the tape in during the live broadcast. But our main focus is on making sure we have the people who can tell the stories that are going to be the most illuminating, that will make the most sense, and that will be the most useful, regardless of where they are.
0: The beginning of the Trump administration may be unlike any other out there. Uh, There seemed to be one controversy or one bombshell after another in the early days of the administration. How do you deal with what are some highly contentious issues, but present them in a way that's thoughtful, conversational, and without all the drama and the raised voices?
1: Well, I think that some of the drama is legitimate. I mean, when people are upset over misstatements or untruths that come out of the administration and people get upset, that's a justifiable reason to be upset. I think the drama over purely partisan issues that just paints people as these political caricatures, that's something that we avoid. And we try to focus on the issue rather than the individual. Having said that, if people are upset about something, we need to convey that there is a great deal of upset over an issue. If people are worried about something, we need to say people are worried. If people are scared, we need to say that. We don't want to suck all of the life out of a conversation to the point where it feels like a dissertation. I mean, this is real life. So we have to make space for people to say what they feel. And then it's my responsibility to try to hear everybody's point of view and try to say... You know, well, I understand what you're saying, but such-and-such such makes a and that so-and-so. So I can glean from everybody's argument a little bit of what the essence is of what they're trying to say and help advocate for their point of view and see how it, how it stands up. I think doing that allows people to come in with whatever emotions they bring to the table, with whatever feelings they have, whatever their lived experiences are of these issues, and still create a space where everyone feels like they don't have to just kind of make nice for public radio – but they know they're coming into a space that will be respectful and meaningful.
0: You brought up the word untruth. NPR was one of uh, several media organizations that weighed in on how to report when something that is not factual comes out the, of the administration. Now, are those there are those who said NPR should just call the president a liar when he said something that wasn't true. The NPR policy said that the network wouldn't do that because it would need proof of intent to tell a lie. Now, this just doesn't, just doesn't hold true for President Trump. But how far do we go as journalists when pointing out an inaccuracy?
1: Well, I think there's another better reason to hedge away from, from doing that. I think there's a big difference between referring to a statement as a lie and referring to a person as a liar, calling a statement a lie is something you can empirically verify. If a public official says something and is caught telling something that is untrue, and then they say that same untrue thing again, then I feel a little more comfortable calling it a lie. But calling someone a liar is a value judgment. It's a way of shaming that person permanently. And that colors every interaction I'm going to have with that person forever. And it also prevents people from hearing me without that filter You know, journalism is a human interaction broadcasting is a human interaction and humans are very prickly about language you know people don't like to be called liars so for me I try not to impute shame against other people I try not to label people or to castigate people based on their actions unless there's a pattern And unless there's a real need, if there's no other way for me to write that statement with integrity and say it, I try very, very hard to make this program as easy for as many people as possible to hear. If you want to call someone a liar and my report of their lies gives you ammunition for that, then use it as ammunition. But don't expect me to pull the trigger. Mm
0: -hmm. So let's get back to what you were talking about earlier about the feel of a program. You really don't have a feel for the program until you've actually done it. So now that you've been doing it for a few months, when when do you have the feel for a good show?
1: I don't know. Ask me in a few years. <laughs> we'll figure it out sooner or later. One of these days. No, I, I think it's. I think the pace of the show feels better to me. I think being able to walk in the studio and not feel like, oh my God, I haven't studied enough. I haven't studied enough. I don't know everything. I don't know everything. That has begun to go away. Just the fear of like not being able to, to state something or have a piece of information at my fingertips, that has eased, I think, managing the flow of the conversation and weaving from one question to a topic to an audience tweet to uh, voicemail to the next person to the next person, that's gotten easier. I already knew how to do that, but in this program, because we're a new show, that just took doing. I think what we've been able to do is create a space where we sound distinct, but still seamless with the rest of what you hear from NPR. I I want us to be an original program. I don't want us to blend into the background. I don't want us to just be another talk show. I, when, when you hear 1A is on the air, or when you hear my voice or our theme, I want you to know that you're going to hear something else that still shares the values of NPR, but doesn't, doesn't fall so neatly in line that it just blends in like wallpaper. And we're finding that there is an appetite for that in the audience, that people like, a lot of people like this new sound, and they recognize the journalism within it as being the same kind of journalism that NPR does. And ultimately, that's what matters. I don't want people to get hung up on the sound as much as on the substance. But we need both, and we're, I think, figuring out how to make them balanced.
0: You know, even here on the local level, and you've worked in local radio, so you know this as well, that, you know, we often tell ourselves that uh, the audience... Really doesn't care the difference between NPR and what they're they're listening to at the time. Even if it is local, they expect that same NPR type quality, and and that's what you're talking about.
1: Well, they care if it's bad. Well, yeah, they care if, right, right. if but their I, local NPR station is so much worse than what they hear on NPR. And there have been stations where they're trying to hit that mark, and they just they just can't hit it because they're speaking out of their own they're speaking in a way that is not natural to them that doesn't feel organic that that their community has a different kind of a rhythm or a different kind of a flavor and by trying to shoehorn that into a more NPR-ish mold they end up sounding unnatural so in those regards localism is really really important and and it's important for people to recognize that the journalism is in line but there's many different ways to sound like you belong on NPR.
0: Yeah. And, and, and the word I used, the most important word there was quality, that listeners often expect the same kind of, kind of quality that they hear on NPR. You know, I probably should have covered this very early in our conversation, but uh, your philosophy of the show, what is it?
1: Well, my basic philosophy of the show is that 1A needs to be a safe space to be heard, that we need to be... A space where people don't engage with clenched fists or sharp elbows, but we engage with open arms. We need to be able to allow people to speak their truth, to speak freely, to learn from one another, to not necessarily agree, where we don't try to calm people down, but where we try to clear the air so they can be heard as they are. We're trying to be a program that sounds like the nation that sounds as diverse and and reasonable and good as I think people generally are. And we're trying to create a space where we can focus on solutions to the problems we all face and not just wallow in the problems themselves. I think that's partly why, for instance, we're so, as a nation, kind of fed up with Congress, because gridlock is about focusing on the problem rather than the solution. And it's about making the person the problem. Those people, those liberals, those Democrats, those conservatives, those Republicans, as opposed to saying, what can we do together? And 1A is that space where we can come together, talk about what we can accomplish, what we're trying to figure out, and hopefully make the world make more sense, and not be so grim all the time. We can be serious about the issues of the day without being wonky and bookish and grim. That ain't my style. <laughs> but I am very serious about the issues we face. So we're just trying to create a space that feels more like, like people actually feel the way that people actually deal with one another when they're at work or you know in line at the grocery store or having dinner with their family we don't have the luxury of standing on these political battle lines you can't do that with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. we we got to live together and 1a is a show that is based on the simple notion that at the end of the day we have to live together
0: which show has been your favorite so far
1: they have been coming so fast and furious. I don't remember what I did today. They just moved so fast. But I think probably... I don't know that I have a favorite yet. I think they've, they've all been either good or instructive for different reasons. I know that our audience really liked the show we did on political comedy with Robin Thede and Nagain Farsad and Trey Crowder. That show was, was very popular. Uh, the show we provided on a Sunday when the protests around the immigration and travel ban kicked up, that was a very popular show. I know a lot of people liked that program, but I don't think I have a, a favorite. My favorite show probably won't, we probably haven't done it yet. We probably haven't even thought of it yet. And then after we do that, then I'll, I'll be looking for the next one. I'm not trying to hit a mark of perfection. I'm trying to maintain a lifestyle of growth. I want our show to keep growing. So whatever my favorite is, hopefully won't be my favorite for too much longer because we'll keep growing beyond that.
0: Who would you want to interview that you haven't yet? I'm sure you have a whole list, but uh, it, it, right now if I ask you who you would like to sit down with and have a conversation with, who would
1: it be? Oh, gosh, there's so many people. Um, other than the president? Yeah. I, we have, everybody we, wants to interview. Right, exactly. Yeah, other than him. There's a lot of different people. I, I, and I, I tend not to... I mean, I I get what you're getting at. I I do have a list of celebrities and famous people that we'd like to, you know, send up trial balloons with, hey, you know, such and such, come on the show. We think you'll have fun. We'd like to talk to you about so-and-so. I am much more keenly interested in some of the more creative shows we can put together. For instance, I would love to get, and I I don't think they'll necessarily do this, but I would love to get the CEO's of the nation's four or five largest oil companies together and do an hour on the energy business i would love to get in a room the ceos of google apple twitter facebook and hp and talk about tech like i would like to get i would love to get the the presidents of the nation's three largest community colleges in a room and talk about the innovations in in secondary education for today's workforce like, I think there are all kinds of creative ways we can bring people together to talk about these larger issues that only they can answer because they're living that experience and they have primary source information, which is what journalists call it, primary sources. To me, that's much more compelling, is creating a concept for a show, because it's also harder than just saying, we're going to do an hour with, you know, with whatever celebrity or whatever director. I've done that before. And those interviews are fun, they're, and often celebrities are great to talk to, especially if they're game for having a fun conversation. But that's not our job. Like our function here is to have a conversation that helps illuminate issues, solves problems, and for me, that happens mostly when we get interesting panels of people together who you would not have thought of. So hopefully, my favorite gets are the ones that the average person, it would never be on their radar. And then once they hear the show, they know that this is... A conversation they could only get from us.
0: So I'm, I'm glad we had an opportunity to, to speak today. But uh, I, you know, I'm always looking ahead to the future. What can we expect from one A?
1: Good question. <laughs> I think if I knew that, I think if I knew that, my sights would be set too low. I, I think we're going to continue. I mean, we're going to continue to do great shows and great conversations, and and stay in close close contact with listeners and try to make sure that we're answering the questions people want answered and that we're, we're providing a good and valuable service and that we're good stewards of this space. But I don't really know what's coming next. And I think that's exciting. I think we have a really good team. I think we are all eager to see the program grow. But I can't answer that alone. 1A is a show that is co-authored between our station, WAMU, and our audience. So for me to try to answer that question unilaterally would miss all of the great feedback and ideas and, 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 and thoughts and insights that come only through our connection with the audience. I'm looking forward to seeing what that turns into. And wherever that goes, I'm fine. I have a great deal of faith in the kind of journalism that we do. I have tremendous faith in listeners. And I believe that now is the time to create a space for this kind of conversation. What form it takes to me is really immaterial, as long as we continue to keep the door open for everyone to come and be heard and speak their mind and seek solutions to the problems we face. So if it feels sometimes like you're just kind of, as a listener, (laughs) sort of along for the ride, I know how you feel, and I'm cool with that.
0: Joshua Johnson. The host of 1A. 1A, of course, comes up at uh, 10 a.m. on WITF. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Human beings and gorillas share 99% of DNA. And while that 1% demonstrates a remarkable difference between the two species, that 99% Points to considerably more similarities. Dr. Lauren Howard is an assistant professor of psychology and scientific and philosophical studies of mind at Franklin and Marshall College. She recently led a team of researchers studying the social and communicative development of chimpanzees and gorillas, and she joins us today. Dr. Howard, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, this research took place at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo. Got a lot of media attention because I don't know if these discoveries were new, but they were very unique in what in what you did find. Tell us generally about your research at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo.
2: Sure, so I did my um, graduate research at the University of Chicago, primarily studying um, human babies, um, infant cognition, and uh, I actually took just kind of a fun field trip up to the Lincoln Park Zoo one day and realized that there were some researchers there um, doing the exact same thing that I was doing in human infants, but with uh, the chimpanzees and gorillas there, so they have um, whole bunch of really interesting cognitive studies that they're doing on primates there and so uh, we got together and thought we would see if um, the chimpanzees and gorillas there looked similar to my human babies um, in terms of whether or not they seem to learn from social models better um, and whether they actually show better memory for events that include other people in them
0: all right so what did you find
2: sure so Basically, um, what we found was that when we showed the chimpanzees and gorillas on a very special piece of technology called an eye tracker, um, we showed them these videos of a person who was building something or we had a control that was not social and had kind of a robotic claw in it that was also building something. Um, And using this eye tracker, we can see exactly where the chimpanzees were looking um, and the gorillas on the screen and how long they were looking. And basically, we could set up a study um, such that we could test what it is they were paying attention to and what they remembered. And we found that um, just like uh, three-year-olds I've studied and six-month-old babies that I've studied, they seem to remember uh, a lot more about the video that had a person in it, as opposed to the one that had an inanimate claw in it, even though they watched both of them equally.
0: So the big question is, and you probably couldn't ask the chimps or the gorillas, (laughs) but why?
2: Right. So this is why we have to get really creative with this kind of technology, because I tend to study populations where I can't ask them what they're interested in and what they remember. Um, So we have to figure out other ways to figure out what they're what they're thinking, basically. Um, I think it probably has something to do with the fact that both humans and a lot of these other non-human primates um, are extremely social beings. And from the moment we're born, we're hugely dependent on other people in our society, right? So a a human baby and a human chimpanzee is kind of worthless without their parents. um, And so we're born into this world needing to pay attention to what other people are showing us. And much of what we learn as humans um, comes from what other people are telling us and what they're teaching. Teaching us. And so I think this suggests that kind of similar to us, um, chimpanzees and gorillas might also be specially tuned into social information.
0: All right. So this is, again, kind of a broad question. and You've touched on this a little bit, but how do chimps and gorillas learn?
2: How do they learn?
0: Meaning, OK, you, you talked about human babies and watching their parents, their, their parents mm-hmm. teaching them. Is it very similar amongst those two species?
2: So um, research is actually just starting to tap into this question, um, which is, I think, why this particular study that we did got a fair amount of press. Um, the way that we previously had looked at how both humans and chimpanzees and gorillas learned was based just on their behaviors. Um, so if they saw someone else doing an action, or if they saw um, another gorilla or chimpanzee doing an action, did they then learn how to do that action and show that action themselves, right? So you can see um, certain types of primates teaching other primates how to crack nuts open and stuff like that. Um, But it was unclear at that point in time if they were learning the same way that we do um, in terms of actually uh, trying to do what this other monkey did or if they were just staring at sort of the end result. So if if you're watching um, a monkey crack a nut open or something like that, are you learning something socially about what that monkey is trying to do when they're cracking the nut open? Or do you just see the nut open at the end and you want to um, make that sort of goal end result the same? Um, We're finding out now, because of this particular study that we did, that it's not just that they're looking at sort of the, the end result, the end goal. Um, they're actually taking into account the whole social situation. So they're taking into account, um, you know, what the the goals of the person teaching them might be. Um, and so it actually suggests that they're learning very similarly to the way that human infants learn, um, which is uh, not just producing um, end effects that they see, but really learning socially um, from from other conspecifics.
0: See, no, I- I know I'm asking a question that you're researching, but when you talk about end result, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that the thought process is going through the chimps, going through the gorillas, that if I do this, what Mm -hmm. I've been shown, Mm -hmm. this is going to be the end result?
2: Right, and that and that is exactly we're we're kind of in a we're trying to figure that out phase right now. Um, there's some people that really do believe that they just um, you know see that end result and figure out a way on their own how to get there. And there's some people that think that they're paying attention to that end result and the way that the person or other primate is showing them how to get to that just end recreating result. it. Right, and so with kids we have this thing um, where actually as adults we do this too. Um, we do something called overimitation. So if you show a child how to do something, um, they will copy it exactly the same way, even if it's kind of um, silly or not necessary. So if I show a kid, before you open this box, I'm going to knock on the box a couple times, um, they will also knock on the box. Um, So it suggests that it's not just the how to open the box, but it's like the this is the culturally appropriate way to do this. Um, And there's some evidence that chimpanzees actually uh, do similar things, though there's other people that think that maybe it's not to the same extent as humans. Um, So this this is exactly, we're at the point in time where we're trying to figure that out.
0: Human beings though, eventually, as they mature and as they achieve that end result, will learn that, well, I don't have to knock on the box to get to that end result. Here's what I can do. Maybe here's a a shortcut that I could do. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you're studying too?
2: Yeah, so actually as human beings, we don't often take that shortcut, which is kind of interesting. Um, So there's lots of things you can think even across cultures that we do that are very different, right? So I eat with a fork in my culture and other people might eat with chopsticks in their culture. And there may be varying degrees as to how successful or helpful that various tool is, but we have culture, right? So part of having human culture is that sometimes we do things that are slightly irrational um, and it's just the the way we do it. That's something you often see when you travel is people are doing the same thing in completely different ways. Um, so it's kind of actually something that we might not grow out of. There's a fair amount of evidence that um, even human adults do this sort of imitation that has both the the end goal in it and kind of the the interesting way to do this end goal. Um, and there's some new research out with chimpanzees suggesting that they have sort of similar cultural practices.
0: That's interesting because you know I'm just picturing human beings. We travel from the United States to say Africa, mm-hmm. Europe, Asia, uh, different cultures. Has there been any research done into chimpanzees, gorilla, gorillas, that if they come from somewhere, if you have, like, two gorillas that don't come from, like, the same region, same country, you know, obviously they don't have borders, but, you know, the same continent that live with a similar species, that they do things differently.
2: Yeah, definitely. That's exactly, um, not just with chimpanzees, but also with other um, animals like dolphins and such. There's there's pockets with, with monkeys, with chimpanzees, with dolphins, with all sorts of different species, even different kinds of birds, where they, they learn how to do something, and that sort of... Um, cultural way to use something or to do something stays within a region, Um, and especially even with dolphins. um, It's been shown that as new dolphin pods come through, they'll teach them how to use that tool or teach them how to do new things um, such that that culture can actually spread as they interact with with different sort of societies, I guess you could call
0: it. When you talk about dolphins, you talk about uh, other primates like uh, chimpanzees, like gorillas. You're talking about... um, Some very intelligent animals, where, you know, at least if we talk about uh, animals that uh, are, are close to human beings, are
2: there others? Yeah. Um, well, I, I tend to focus on those that are probably most similar to humans, right, because right. because yeah. I'm coming from a human perspective. And, and really, we're not that close <laughs> to, to dolphins. Right, right. Although, I mean, it, it does, I, I think that there is something to be said for the fact that you see these kind of things developing in species that have to be particularly social, right? So in those kind of species where they're young, are born not completely ready to take on the world by themselves, as opposed to something like sea turtles, where they leave their eggs and, and then go off. And and there's no sort of reason to depend on another social creature. So I think there could be a potential evolutionary story here, for sure. Um, there are there's sort of evidence of, of various um, tool use and things that look like imitation in other species. Like I was saying, like um, birds, there actually was a paper that just came out recently showing that bees learn socially from one another. So if you teach um, one bee how to do something and have another bee watch it, it will um, imitate the, the sort of action that the bee is doing, which is pretty interesting. Um, Um, But again, we're kind of right on the edge of figuring out sort of why that happens and how that happens.
0: Why is this research important? I mean, what can we learn from it?
2: Yeah, I think this research is um, really important because, well, for, for a number of reasons. One is um, the method that, that I used in this particular paper and that I'm using with um, human infants and now some capuchin colonies that we have at Franklin and Marshall College. Um, this eye tracking method really allows us to sort of get into the brains of these animals in ways that we had not been able to do before. So it's it's cutting edge in that way. And I hope will open new doors for all sorts of different research, whether it's related to social learning or not. Um, but in terms of understanding understanding sort of uh, where these evolutionary roots of social learning and social memory comes from, I think it tells us a lot of really interesting information about these different animal species, but it also tells us a lot about ourselves. Um, And I think, you know, the reason I'm so interested in early development is because um, you can take this sort of being that doesn't have a lot of experience in the world yet and see really how their brain functions, how it develops over time, um, and that can tell us a lot about who we are even as adults. Um, and adding on other species to this story just gives us more history into why we are the way we are.
0: Mm-hmm. Memory. Yes. You're talking about uh, memories in human babies. What yes. about uh, the memories of chimpanzees and gorillas?
2: As in, do they have memories? Yeah. And what kind of
0: memories <laughs> yeah. do they have?
2: Well, I I don't think we really know that much about their memory yet. Like I was saying before, the way that we um, traditionally have tapped into um, sort of what they learn and remember is just by looking at their behavior in terms of, you know, if we show them something, do they then do it themselves? Um, The cool thing about doing things like eye tracking is that we can actually um, figure out not only is this an action they want to produce, but sort of um, is this a, a thing that they actually fundamentally remembered differently. And so um, the way that we do this, both with the chimpanzees, gorillas, and babies, is we we actually get them very bored of something. (laughs) So we show them something over and over again. um, And you might suspect that after you're really bored of something, you're really interested in looking something that is new or fascinating, right? And so we show them something new along with the thing that we just got them really bored of um, and see if they like to look at that new thing. And if they look a lot at that new thing, that suggests that they remembered the old thing because they're super sick of it and they don't want to stare at it anymore. Um, This isn't asking the chimp or gorilla to do anything. They don't have to be motivated to play with us. They just have to look at something for a while and get kind of sick of it. And so this way, um, we're just starting to figure out now um, how to design new research studies to really figure out what do they know versus what types of actions do they like to do.
0: I'm curious about, um, you know, I don't know, the... I guess I'm, I'm, what I'm curious about is uh, the similarities between humans and some of the challenges that uh, human beings face, uh, some of the illnesses, some of the d- diseases. For example, uh, are there gorillas, are there chimpanzees that suffer from mental illness?
2: Yeah, I mean, in a lot of different animal species, um, this is not you know, my full area of of expertise, but you do see um, in a lot of animal species various types of what we might consider um, sort of disabilities or mental illnesses. Um, You can get things that look like autism in... um, For example, primates that are reared away from other social groups where they don't have any social input. Um, You can see things like anxiety or stress, um, which, of course, are some of the things that um, plague us as human beings as well. And um, you can see things like in old age uh, dementia, Alzheimer's and such. But again, because we can't ask them a lot about sort of um, their mental experience, it's a little bit hard to figure out um, if they're having very similar mental illnesses to the types of things that we have as humans.
0: So what's the next step? Where do you go from here?
2: Right. So like I said, um, we have uh, a few capuchin colonies at FNM. And so I've been doing a lot of work with um, my colleague Elizabeth Lonsdorf there looking at um, whether or not we see these types of social memory differences not only in chimpanzees who are considered, of course, um, by many people to be very similar to us, but some of these other primate species that are also very social but even farther down the the evolutionary road, if you will. Um, And in human chimpanzees, children, I'm really interested in in answering more of this um, question of why. So it's, um, you know, one thing to say, well, we're social creatures, and that's why. um, But sort of what aspect of a social situation actually um, helps us learn more? Is it that we know someone's acting in an intentional way? Um, Is it because when we see someone else acting, we're kind of in our brain mimicking that action and getting ready to do it ourselves, really digging into sort of the the mechanisms of not only saying, um, we learn more from people, but Like, what are the sort of cues that we're getting from people that are really helping us to remember?
0: Dr. Lauren Howard is an assistant professor of psychology and scientific and philosophical studies of mind at Franklin and Marshall College. Interesting. Dr. Howard, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Last month, President Trump met with Robert Kennedy Jr., who is someone who questions the safety of vaccinations for children and whether they could contribute or cause autism. Kennedy left that meeting saying Trump asked him to head up a committee to research the safety of vaccines. I had the opportunity to speak with the Pennsylvania's Department of Health Deputy Secretary for Promotion Disease Prevention, Dr. Lauren Robinson, about the issue. When you hear something like that, I'm not looking for a political answer or you to talk about politics. But when you hear something like that, that uh, questions whether vaccines are safe and maybe puts it in someone's mind that, uh, hey, this is something maybe we're not going to get our kids vaccinated. What do you think?
3: So, so vaccines is always is always a touchy issue um, and obviously beyond, beyond the needle. But I think that um, it's really important from a public health standpoint to see kind of changes in overall health status as it relates to vaccine-preventable diseases since vaccines have been implemented. So since the kind of implementation and requirement of certain vaccines, we've definitely seen a decrease in vaccine-preventable illness and death. So the, the purpose of vaccines is really to prevent death and um, to pre- prevent the, the extreme debility that causes that is caused by these diseases. And I think we can say, if we look over the past 50 to 100 years, we've definitely done that. Um, there is not anything that is ever going to be 100% good or 100% bad. And I think, you know, I get, I get as a pediatrician, I get a lot of feedback from um, patients who are like, you know, I don't want my child to have to go to school with an unvaccinated child. But at the same time, I think it's important to have open communication with parents and with communities about uh, the benefits and risks of vaccines. And I think there's been a long tradition of just saying, we're going to do this vaccine. This is what we're going to do. You have to do it. And it's important to make sure that we're weighing the benefits and the risk. Um, by, by risk, you mean side effects? The side effects, exactly. And and every medication, anything that you put into your body can have side effects. I think the challenge is that um, you can't predict how every single person will react. We know how 95 to 99 percent will react, but we don't know who that 1% is. And the challenge is you can't do a, a randomized study to say, okay, I'm going to give your child the vaccine and I'm not going to give your child the vaccine and we'll just see what happens because no parent would ever say, sure, you can randomize my child to that. I think it's important to maintain an open mind and make sure that we do have the most robust data. And if we're only going by what we've always done, we'll never know. Um, and so I think it's always important to entertain the fact that there may be some side effects that we have under calculated. I think it's important to look at the data to make sure that we're holding the CDC accountable um, to make sure that we're giving folks who have whatever concerns they have about vaccines uh, an opportunity to speak on that and an opportunity to address that. I think if you shut people out or, you know, designate people as an anti-vaxxer or say that this person kind of doesn't merit having this conversation, you, you run an equally dangerous route as, as you do um, by just not vaccinating anyone at all. So I think having the conversation is important, but I think you have to have a balanced view
0: but with that said i mean the science has said there was an erroneous report years ago out of great britain right that said <laughs> that uh, vaccinations could contribute to autism, right. that has since been debunked.
3: It has been. And so, um, uh, we previ- uh, in our state, actually, this earlier, or actually, I would say earlier this year, but it's now 2017. So in late 2016, uh, the Department of Health received the approval to move forward with changes to our state vaccination policy for school-aged children, and um, that we wanted to change our provisional period. So previously in Pennsylvania, children had up to 180 days to get all their vaccines, um, to be caught up on all their vaccines. The challenge is that it's then you have a lot of children who are unvaccinated and you have the potential for outbreaks to occur in school-based settings. The, ch- the thing that's scary about that is you have some children who cannot receive vaccines. And when those kids get vaccine-preventable illnesses, they can die. And, that, and that's what we're trying to prevent. So the change in regulation is that we've decreased this period down to five days. So all children have to be caught up on all their vaccinations by the fifth day of school.
0: Now, I said we wouldn't get into politics, but still, and I have to ask you this question, though. As a pediatrician, uh, you said earlier that having the conversation about side effects is a good thing. But uh, I don't know. Do you see it as a responsible thing to be talking about uh, You know, having a study of whether vaccinations – Contribute to autism when it has been debunked.
3: I think it's really important for uh, people to be aware of all the data. So um, prior to going into these hearings about the about the vaccine, I watched the movie Vax, which was about the which was actually a very um, well done film, but it was a one sided portrayal of how the director really felt that vaccines caused autism. And then I read the follow up studies to say, well, this is how. And why this has been debunked. And I think it's important for pediatricians to be armed with that information because it is a very convincing film. And as if I had seen it as a parent, I would be very alarmed about autism. But I think it's very important for pediatricians and for parents to know that it has been debunked. A quick Google search will give them all the information they need. And there's many different areas where it's been debunked. I think the thing for parents to realize is the main side effect from a vaccine um, is going to be irritability and fever. And those are things that parents need to watch out for and um, treat and take care of their children. I think when you look at the, the movie, the one thing that really unified all the children in that movie is they all had this alarmingly high fever that went untreated for a certain amount of time. And I think most likely that's the thing that is causing these issues with whether it's brain damage or autism or all these other sequelae. It's not the vaccine that's causing these things is that you had all these other side effects or these things that went unnoticed or untreated. And as a result of that, these children developed, developed what we call debilitating brain injury. As a
0: pediatrician, I'm sure you've had parents who have come to you and said, "You know, I don't want to have my my child vaccinated." Do you try to talk them into it, uh, or what do you say?
3: So my first my first question to them is why. Um, there are some people who say, "Well, I don't want to have my child vaccinated because my previous child was vaccinated and then developed brain injury." In those cases, I don't push. I think it's it's important to give the parents the information. I say, "Okay, well, this is what we're trying to prevent." We have seen the resur- resurgence of measles. We thought polio was gone. We are seeing. Polio come back. Um, these are things that caused extreme debility in the United States. We've seen that. We have people who are still alive who suffered through polio and are still um, struggling with the sequela of that. Um, and so I try to ask them what their concerns are. I think in most cases, when I've had a a parent who's had some reticence or some concerns about vaccines, I've been able to give them the facts or address what their specific fear or concern is. And in most cases, they come around and really would prefer to have their child vaccinated. There are cases where parents are going to say, you know, it's still my right to choose, and I respect that. Um, But there are increasing numbers of pediatric practices that don't allow unvaccinated children to come in, just because there are so many children with complicated and complex medical conditions who are at such higher risk from an unvaccinated child.
0: It is a Teen Health Week here in Pennsylvania. Dr. Lauren Robinson is Deputy Secretary of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, always a pleasure to talk to you.
3: Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great one.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. And I want to thank Dr. Robinson again for agreeing to talk about that controversial topic. Uh, okay. Tim Lambert, if you listen to WITF on a regular basis, you know that uh, Tim wasn't uh, on Morning Edition for the last week or so. He actually was leading a contingent of WITF listeners to the island nation of Cuba. And uh, in the last few minutes of the program, wanted to sit down with Tim and talk about his experiences. Tim, welcome to the program.
4: Great to be here, Scott.
0: All right. I'm going to ask a, a broad question to okay. begin with, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who ask a question just like this. What was it like? I mean, Cuba is just shrouded in so much mystery since it's been a closed society, especially to the United States for so many years. What was it like?
4: Uh, it was fascinating, really. Uh, you're, you're seeing uh, the island nation in transition, uh, they're making the transition to try to open up their society a little bit more to uh, to uh, the global economy, and uh, it was it was great to just sort of uh, wander around Havana and uh, different parts of of Cuba as well to see how people live and to see the the, the changes that are kind of overtaking their society.
0: When you say wander around. Uh, You know back during the Cold War when the United States Cuba was one of uh, the United States biggest adversaries along with the Soviet Union Uh, And when we we could never even picture wandering around Havana or the countryside in Cuba Did you see any of that did you feel that
4: Uh, the only really? uh, sort of adversarial thing that that I encountered was uh, when we arrived at the airport. Now, this is part of the WITF Travel Club. There were 33 people on this tour, and I was sort of the group leader until we got to Santa Clara Cuba to meet up with our tour guide uh, it was a build as an educational tour that's how we were able to uh, to arrange this um, and uh, I was pulled aside by someone I didn't know who he didn't identify himself wasn't even in uniform and said are you the tour leader and he took me in a room and he started asking me a lot of questions uh, so I was a little nervous at first and but then I saw how he was taking notes and so I would answer a question he'd write my name down Lambert he would write down my, my passport number and then I would say you know where are you from he'd say I'd say Pennsylvania he'd write down Pennsylvania. I mean, he took these terrible notes. So I think he was just going through the motions of, I questioned an American today. So it wasn't... uh, Once I saw what he was writing down, I wasn't too concerned. But that was the only time. I mean, there wasn't a police presence, really, uh, just other than what you'd normally see in a big city. Um, There wasn't a military presence or anything like that. Um, And uh, we had a chance to talk to the Cuban people. And and they just love Americans at this point, because um, there's a lot of Canadians that go to Cuba, but they never leave sort of the resort area. They never interact with the Cuban people. So when americans come out and i handed out baseballs to some kids and things like that it was it was great
0: all right so tell me what you saw that was most impressive or that you looked at and said boy that is really neat or whatever
4: uh, Obviously, the old cars, uh, the 1950s American cars that still are on the highway. I was surprised. I was under the impression that all the cars were, were from that era, but uh, they seemed to like the 1980s Soviet cars, the Russian cars, because they don't need computers to fix them. Uh, but to see so many cars from 1950s uh, Americana sort of still on the roads and serving as taxis and I had a chance to ride in a 53 Chevy Bel Air, mm. so that was awesome. Uh, and it was also cool to see Hemingway's house outside of Havana and uh, to see his office. As it was, and to see his obviously his booze collection (laughs) because he he liked to drink. He didn't like mojitos, by the way, because he was diabetic. So that's a myth. And he sort of told people, "Hey, I like the mojitos at this bar because this it was a friend of his, and his bar was struggling. So that's where the myth came from."
0: What about beaches? What about infrastructure? Uh,
4: Infrastructure was was really where uh, you noticed a difference. There isn't a major highway, so you're in this bus, this modern bus traveling these back roads in, in Cuba and trying to, uh, to, to get to where you're going and you're passing people on bicycles and, and, and little cars and all kind of horse buggies and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you, you couldn't drink the water out of the tap. You had to have bottled water and uh, you couldn't use uh, toilet paper in the toilet. You had to throw it in the garbage can. So that was uh. a, a big change. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. sound. Uh,
0: yeah. What about beaches? I know you said you didn't spend a lot of time to beaches. The
4: beaches were beautiful. I mean, you're talking pristine area because there hasn't been a lot of industrialization or anything like that there. So these these the environment the environment is is just so well kept there because of the coral reefs and things like that. It that was that was amazing to see.
0: Well, you're going to have a lot of pictures on uh, one of our WITF uh, websites very soon. Yes, where our listeners can go and see that. Tim, thank you very much for being with us today.
4: Anytime, Scott.
0: Coming up on tomorrow's program, a move to allow some people who suffer from um, mental illnesses to legally purchase guns and a campaign to recruit more volunteer firefighters.